0: It's our last, it was our last capital single. Had it been the first song on, the, on another label, I think we would've probably uh, kicked it a little uh, up a notch, but it's still pretty good. I, I really like it. Friends And welcome back to the Sail On podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee. Very thankful to be here. I'm thankful that you are here with me as well for another episode celebrating our beloved Beach Boys. We are reaching the end of an era, the end of the decade, a very odd and troubling time for the band, as we've mentioned. But there's still some beautiful music. Be made and to be discussed on the show. Thankful for Will and John, who are going to guide us through the final recording sessions for the Capitol label, which were planned for a new album called The Fading Rock Group Revival or Reverberation. Some of these songs were never released and some would make it onto the Sunflower album, but we did get one fantastic last single from Brian and Murray on the Capitol label.
1: Hi everyone, welcome back. Last time Will and I were here, we talked about the 2020 album and the sessions that completed that album in in 1968, which sort of featured Brian as an equal participant in the group um, rather than a leader. And we talked about a single he produced for the Honeys as well. And now before 2020 or that single came out, the Beach Boys started working on more sessions in the studio with Dennis being their new principal songwriter and Brian kinda of taking a break from music. So why don't we hear what the Beach Boys were up to during this time, Will? Sure. Okay. This is this is kind of an unusual little period
2: that nobody ever talks about. It's when they were working on an album for Capitol after twenty twenty, which wasn't supposed to be the last album on Capital, they still owed them one more, even though the contract was, you know, about to expire. Um, so, so there's this kind of like mini era that ended up being sort of, you know, they, they took a lot of songs and put them into Sunflower and so others came out as singles. Um, but there was this whole album really in the first half of 1969 that they were working on that was its own sort of little period that kind of ends up being forgotten. So that's sort of what we're going to talk about. Um, and just to catch up with where the Beach Boys were in this point, because I don't think there's a lot kind of said about what the lifestyle was like it, in, um, In the late 60s. But uh, Bruce spoke to NME in March that year and gave a little catch-up on what everyone was doing. So he said, uh, Mike Love is taking yoga lessons, guitar lessons, and flying lessons for his pilot's license, which is concerning. Um, Al Jardine is writing songs (laughs) and has written a track with Brian about a circus for the new album, Um, Ominous. Dennis Wilson is is writing songs and producing two tracks. Someone crashed his Ferrari. They completely ruined it. Then someone came along with a tow truck and stole it. So Dennis's life is... um, you know been up and down since uh, 68 and now apparently i think in some other articles he said that he's living in like a one-bed apartment a one-bedroom apartment with like no sink or bathroom he's just got a bed and a piano and someone's stolen his car so you know dennis is going through th- some stuff at this point um carl is uh, in three weeks his wife annie's having their first baby And he says that uh, Brian is writing and producing his wife and a sister, um, sleeping late and playing tennis. (laughs) And uh, the group has got the honeys and they'll have a record out soon. And then uh, Bruce says he's writing music for a film about surfing. Uh, That hasn't got a title yet, which, you know, also also didn't come out. So that's kind of where everyone was at 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 this point. Um, Dennis was having sort of this unusual lifestyle before he met his next wife, Barbara just in a, in a bedroom with a bed and a piano and nothing else. And he was making quite a lot of music for the first time. He'd obviously completing 2020 without Brian being there through the whole thing had given them a lot of confidence and they were all sort of branching off into their own um, territory at this point. Um, Mike taking guitar lessons is kind of interesting. We didn't, you know, not a lot came out of that, but obviously it was a route into him writing songs on his own, which ended up being Big Sur and all that sort of thing in the early 70s. And then Brian at this point was pretty much taking a break from music and in a lot of the stuff they recorded this year he just wasn't involved in it he was apparently just slipping in and playing tennis so there you go
1: <laughs> yeah dennis's uh home situation was a little a little complicated at this time and uh, he had this was recently after he kind of got ousted from his own house by manson right yeah and he he moved i mean his life changed at such a you know, quicker pace than Brian. It's it's hard to hard to keep track of what he's doing, but we got the music right. Yeah. Uh, so the first song they start working on is a Dennis song that he's written with Greg Jacobson called San Miguel, and they start tracking the song before 2020 is even out, and they were kind of hoping for it to be the next beach boys single
2: yeah it's it's um a pretty commercial song for dennis so far i mean the last things he done he done you know that kind of moody ballad in be with me and then he had mona karner and time to live in dreams the sort of more esoteric Kalenitz things and then the hard rocker with all i want to do but this is kind of like dennis really writing a sort of commercial pop song um for the first time. And they um, they first tried recording it on January 9th, Capital Studios. Haven't heard this tape, but this is apparently just Carl and Dennis on piano and guitar. Um, and they weren't happy with it. So a few days later they went back to Sunset Sound and recorded it with a bigger group. And this is another thing about these sessions as well, is at this point they were near the end of their contract with Capitol. And I think they were sort of taken advantage of that by like using all of these different studios and hiring a lot of musicians that they, you know, Brian's approach in the last sort of year or so was kind of minimalist, but they, they even, since Brian was sort of out of the picture a little bit at this point, it's, it's kind of like they were taking advantage of what they had while they still had it. And there's a lot of these sessions as we go through where they aren't really using Brian's home studio. We're not even sure if they did use that at all at this point um, throughout the first half of the year. And they were, they're all at like Sunset Sound and Western and Gold Star. And there's a lot of musicians hired for these tracks, and it's kind of like a return to the mid-60s in a way, in the scale of a lot of them. It's sort of like they're all doing their own sort of mid-60s, today, summer days, Pet Sounds era scale sort of productions.
1: And, and without Brian, so it's, it's, it's really, this is, I know we talked about this a little bit on 2020, but this is really everyone picking up and learning from Brian. And this song, San Miguel, actually sounds like something that Brian could have done, in my opinion. Whereas yeah. the other Dennis Dennis things had, you know, a totally different mood happening to them.
2: It does, yeah. I mean, Brian called this one of his favourite Dennis songs at one point. I mean, I think he's said that a few times, actually. And even, he kind of copped the melody for uh, Someone to Love on Sweet Insanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and combined it with Lana. So, Dennis was um, really sort of shooting off on his own at this point. and And... Um, yeah but i think dennis said at one point that he uh no brian said that dennis asked him for advice about the song and brian just you know told him he liked it and uh, he stayed out of the studio because uh, <laughs> it's it's you know it's kind of weird what whatever was brian was into at this point he sort of disappears for this point it's hard to talk about what brian's where brian's at because he's you know i guess just playing tennis um He's he's completely. It's not like 2020 where he's sort of popping in and out. He's completely sort of not involved in any of these sessions as they as they go on throughout the first half of the year.
1: Yeah, he on on those tracks like Never Learn Not to Love. He appears on the vocals and and he pops up here and there and and had he had Cotton Fields that he was producing while the others were doing songs. Uh, He he's not on any of this material we'll talk about today until the last song. Everyone was doing the vocals without him and at at this point, the Beach Boys could do that they they did know how to entirely produce songs and and albums without without Brian and of course it's always better when he's there and and they probably probably would want him to be but he was hearing all this music and he just wasn't participating and he he has you know he did hear all this because these were his you know his his family and his band mm. um he just kind of stayed out of it.
2: They tried doing San Miguel again. This is the version that they ended up finishing on January 13th at Sunset Sound. And this is, um, I think, Dennis on piano, or maybe Daryl Dragon was there as well. Carl and James Burton on acoustic guitars. Laueritz on bass. Harblayne on drums. and they added some things like organ, and Daryl Dragon played a couple of marimba parts. This is the first time, I think... Um, oh, no, Mona Karna as well, but this is him working on a Dennis track, and obviously he would become Dennis's sort of right-hand guy very quickly through this. Yeah, this is you know where he started to collaborate with dennis quite a lot um and he's playing you know he's playing two different marimba parts in there and how's playing castanets which ended up being doubled and it's a very castanet heavy track i mean the, the, the song's lyrically about mexico so they were trying to you know put that into the music with the um with that and the marimbas um it's it's not so much like a brian production at this point it's it's a very like kind of it's very spectory, I think, more than Brian. It's like a big sort of muddy wall of sound where everything's just playing
1: rhythm together. Um, yeah, and the the castanets definitely help yeah. in that regard. Yeah, definitely.
2: Um, so, so then they added bass to that. And then th- this is something they worked on quite a lot. They did a lot of sessions for this song, so I'm just going to sort of quickly run through everything they did. And the next day on, um, on January 14th, Carl did a lead vocal that wasn't used um, on the 22nd at Valentine's Studio. They added trumpets and uh, saxophones, which were, again, I think, arranged by Roger Newman from the touring group, which he was working with Dennis kind of closely on some of these things. And then, you know, um, later in that day, they added some violins, which are sort of just holding, like, these high notes in the background. And then on January 24th, Hal came in to do some more percussion, which involved some hand claps, a tambourine, and I think some castanets that ended up being... Um, wiped off the tape. Again, this is like a lot of stuff to just get through quickly here on here. And then on January 27th, Dennis and Carl were back in the studio to do some more stuff. Um, and they added some kind of like solo stuff, like Carl played these fuzz guitar parts uh, for a solo, once harmonized. And then for a second solo, there's um, a Moog synthesizer with a ribbon controller kind of just sliding all over the place. And I'm not sure if they used like a full size Moog for this, or if it was the uh, touring Woo Machine Theremin, I'm not really sure about that, but it's <laughs> one of the two. It's some sort of synthesizer. Yeah, the, this is something else we have started to see in these tracks as well. They start using synthesizers, and that kind of fades away a little bit, and they didn't really get into that again properly until Surf's Up, but there's quite a few uh, Mo parts on these tracks that are sort of quite hidden in the songs. So, yeah, so they've got this sort of slidey little, I don't... Um, I, that solo always kind of reminds me of the Thunderbirds theme tune it's it's, it's a strange one um, yeah so it's on I think it's around late January maybe January ninth. not really sure they did the vocals no Brian there and Alan Bruce are kind of together being the Brian Wilson of this um, and there's Mike has a great bass vocal part on there and Carl sings the lead vocal and then they had a mix that uh, was found on an acetate that used to belong to Dennis um at this point which sounds i think a lot better than the final one because it's got like a sort of like reasonable amount of castanets but the beach boys decided that that wasn't you know there weren't quite enough castanets so again what they did is they took the mix and a few days later this is apparently on hal's birthday on february 5th they got hal back in the studio and had him add even more castanets to the song like just straight on top of the stereo <laughs> mix as they were copying it so the original mix of the song, which came out on 10 Years of Harmony compilation and uh, the Good Vibrations box set, it's just like, the song is basically just castanets and bass and drums is what it sounds like, it's it's a bit much. Um, <laughs> so, th- so that's how they sort of dealt with, well, I guess would be like Hal playing castanets times two, and then on top of that you've got Hal and Dennis Steve, playing even more castanets on top of that, so it's, it's kind of a big wall of castanets, this track basically. Um,
1: yeah, the, uh, they. I always thought they went a little overboard with that on this song.
2: Yeah, I don't think it sounds great, um, especially in the original mix, but the remix I think sounds a lot better than it was on Feel Flows. Maybe a bit too heavy, but you know. And then I think what Mark did to sync up those castanets that were only on the mix reel was um, just took some outtakes and ran Dennis and Howell rehearsing and then kind of synced it up through the song. Um, yeah, so that, that's San Miguel, kind of an extensive production at this point. It was also supposed to be planned as a single and Al spoke about that when they went to Vancouver in January to do some shows
1: nice yeah um Hal is also playing his his uh what he called his monster kit on this song which is uh, I think he played it on cotton fields as well but it was this you know he had a, a whole bunch of tom drums before a time where that became really standard so in the bridge you can kind of hear him run down the whole kit and it's really cool it sounds really heavy One thing about this song, I know I said that the Beach Boys are, are learning to pick up uh, where Brian left off, but they haven't really mastered his efficiency. Because, I mean, Dennis was a guy who who tinkered with his songs. I mean, I mean from beginning to end, this took a month of, of work on and off. Whereas, you know, this didn't happen all the time, but Brian could produce a, a track in, in a three-hour session and then do the vocals just... You know in a, in a day so this is you know I I, and I think that's more also to do with Dennis not being as totally sure of himself and and confident as, as Brian was but um he eventually will be
2: yeah it's sort of a it's sort of a thing you find in a lot of these tracks where they would you know put stuff down and then sort of just overdub it like they were coming up with ideas on the fly and seeing what worked which is a more sort of typical way that anyone worked on productions in the 60s, basically. But Brian was quite different in the way that he'd sort of have it all arranged and be very deliberate with, with what he wanted. And occasionally he'd come back yeah. and add something if he felt like the track needed something. But it's a little bit different to the way Dennis and Carl worked, which was kind of put down a rhythm track and then just see what they could add on top of it that sounded good.
1: Yeah, Brian was less, I guess, experimental. He didn't sit around and, and, and take time to experiment with his productions after the fact he would just kind of figure out how he wanted them to sound and then record them that way
2: yeah and as well following on from i can hear music and uh, bluebirds over the mountain this is a bruce johnston vocal arrangement probably i, I don't think he's explicitly yeah. said that but sounds you know, like it yeah i mean i think he was doing most of the vocal arranging for the group at this point when brian wasn't there and it's, it sounds like his work i mean Alan bruce are both sort of taking on the the brian high parts in here And doing a decent job, but, you know, in the refrain, the looking for the ladies of love part, Al is very squeaky. Al kind of...
1: Yeah, they end up sounding quite a bit like Brian. They do. On a lot of these songs. They do,
2: yeah. But at this point, Al was basically the Brian Wilson. I mean, Bruce was a bit less, so Al was doing all the Brian parts. And he was, I think, getting into what we tend to call his goblin voice. um, As we get in the late 60s and early 70s, like very sort of shrill I think trying to replicate the Brian wine, but it's it's quite a different effect. You know, Al's normally been known for a sort of really smooth, sort of pretty falsetto until this point, And he starts really leaning into this kind of, you know, the, the, uh, the Al Jardine goblin sound at this point, um, which is sometimes kind of a bit brutal. Um, yeah, but they're also, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great group vocal and clearly, you know, it's more creative than... Say, maybe I can hear music, and at this point, they're really proving that they can do the whole Beach Boys thing without Brian. They've learned a lot. And, you know, they've got all these interesting overlapping parts, and Mike has a really good bass vocal that sounds like the sort of thing you would have done in a Brian production.
1: Yeah, I like, I love Mike's part on this song.
3: Yeah, I like, I
1: McGill,
3: la, la, for la, lady, la, la,
2: I don't know why they didn't release this as a single, because they put so much work into it. Al seemed excited about, about it when he talked in that interview in uh, January I think in March Bruce was still in that same enemy article, Bruce was alluding to this being the new single as well, even though you didn't mention the title. Um, but for some reason they just didn't put it out. It's they did that with quite a few things at this point. I mean, it's just like in 2020 when they mm-hmm. were recording singles and then not and then switching on to something else that they thought was going to be the new single.
1: Yeah. Not quite a decisive group when you have sort of equally contributing members rather than a kind of a dictator-like leader yeah so this
2: is a song that had kind of quite a long shelf life um of them trying to use it you know it was going to be put on the album that they wanted to do for um to follow up sunflower in late 1970 they were put it on that reel and then later in the 70s as well i think there was a push to put it on miu and then maybe keeping the summer alive and then it finally came out on the 10 years of harmony compilation for the first time so this is one that was kind of uh, remembered by the group for a long time, and it is strange that it didn't manage to get released for that long.
1: Yeah, but at least it came out in Dennis's lifetime, unlike, honestly, most of his music. Yeah. Uh, next track that Dennis did, also at Sunset Sound, was Got to Know the Woman, which did eventually come out on Sunflower.
2: Yeah, this one's uh, kind of a light song compared to i don't think this was planned to be a single i don't think this was just an album track and this is uh kind of i don't know it's, it's kind of a throwaway compared to some of the other things he's doing but it's still a lot of fun um yeah this is another another track he did at, at sunset sound that's kind of interesting for this one having all of the dragon brothers playing on this uh duke dragon was touring with them at the time in place of daryl for a while and then all three of the the uh dragon brothers who were quite important to the Beach Boys uh, through the late 60s, early 70s, of playing on this track. It was Dennis on piano, Daryl Dragon on the attack piano, Duke Dragon on organ, Dennis Dragon on uh, drums, Ed Carter on guitar, and Joe Osborne playing bass. And then, um, yeah, so th- this is kind of, a, kind of a simple rhythm track. It's a pretty straight ahead, you know, sort of rolling piano, 50s type thing. Um, and... You know, they didn't do a lot more with it from there. It's kind of an interesting approach to the production here. On the final take of the of the session, um, they overdubbed some sort of fuzz guitar, but then they didn't end up using that. And Dennis went back to the take before that, wiped off the organ, and then added his lead vocal in place of that. Which is kind of an interesting way of doing it. That's more like the sort of thing the Beatles would do. Like, you know, Brian never did that sort of thing and then on uh, the following day they had a session with a load of female backing vocalists which was kind of interesting it's like a a real specific sound dennis was obviously going for here with um julia tillman carolyn willis and edna wright were hired uh for this thing and um i I don't know what there is to say about this song i haven't really listened to it in a while i should have listened to it before we did this (laughs) podcast
1: (laughs) yeah i think really the only uh it's not—it's not a super notable song. It's just kind of another throwaway. It—it it does have a—it's—it's uh, it's a bit interesting in, in the way the chords are put together because it's just—it's just a it's just blues until you get to uh, the chorus when he sings "Got to know the woman" and the and the chords keep kind of rising up in the way that that they do in a lot of Dennis Wilson songs. Um, you know, a little bit like "Good Vibrations." Dennis's vocal is, is great. I, I always loved it. I think it's pretty funny and also just sounds really good so right off the bat with two Dennis songs and the next song they worked on was yet another uh, celebrate the news this is uh, another one that they recorded at Sunset sound which is seeming to be Dennis's favorite studio um, yeah this is a, a kind of a weird song it's 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 a waltz kind of. It's in 3, and um, it's another collaboration with Greg Jacobson on the lyrics, and, you know, this eventually ended up being the B-side of Breakaway and didn't really find a place on an album. Um, but it's it's a weird little song. I mean, uh, the, the track had a lot of different session players on it, so let, let's talk about that.
2: Yeah, it had um, Bruce and Mike Lang playing piano, Carl was playing an acoustic guitar, I think a 12-string. James Burton was playing acoustic guitar again, just like Sam Miguel, Ray Paulman, and Jimmy Bond for playing basses on this. He had two drummers. For some reason, John Guerin and Richie Frost, uh, the Pet Sounds drummer, if you remember him from way back. Uh, and Frank Cap plays the uh, timpani that, come in, that comes in at the end of the song. Um, I and I don't know. We haven't really gone like done a proper breakdown on on this track yet. Um, does it sound like it's two people playing drums at once? It kind of it's kind of got that sort of murky sound to it.
1: Yeah, I've never really. Li- I I probably should have listened, but it, it's the drums are weird too. Yeah. Because uh, I don't know, it's kind of an odd song uh, in terms of like the the beat that he has going. Because then it kind of picks up into the double time. Yeah, totally. Um, I
2: mean, on, I mean, on top of that as well, they added um, like a dobro and an acoustic guitar, kind of playing a version of the lead vocal melody, and it, it's got this sort of like countryish feel, sort of to it. It's like a little bit folky. It's, it's, it's a really odd sort of thing. So yeah, that was on February 24th. And then again, they added some violins um, later that day. And then um, after that at some point they, oh it was on the 25th, they added all these uh, flute parts played by uh, Joel Peskin um, and some extra guitars played by Carl and some, some tambourine played by Dennis. Got kind of a circular sort of feel is the way I've seen it described, once You know, the, the melody kind of like loops around and with the lyrics sort of repeat themselves. It's a, it's this really strange song, it's really unique. And then for the lead vocals, Carl and Dennis kind of sang it as a duet you know carl's singing this quite close harmony to dennis's leader just above him and then dennis just doubled his part on, on his own and uh, carl's also the one who goes uh, hello in the start um oh I love, keep, I, love I love that i love that so part. much me too i love that um and then the backing vocals again i think it may have been a bruce arrangement or just the group sort of contributing the ideas but there's no brian on this one and al is doing the brian wilson parts here Al is really grating on this as well with the um, bad luck no more sort of things that come in, in the middle. He's like the the way that's mixed in in the uh, the B side mix is like he Al is way up in the mix and it's brutal if you're wearing headphones. Um, <laughs> so then they added um, like some some synthesizer parts again, just like in San Miguel. It's kind of interesting that they're already pivoting to these quirky little synth uses. Um, mm-hmm. They hadn't really figured out what they wanted to use a synthesizer for, but they had access to it. So, Carl actually played the, um, like a Moog bass part on this. It was programmed by uh, Paul Beaver. And um, Carl has yeah, pl- played this sort of squelchy little bass part, which I think sort of basically replaced the uh, actual basses that are on the track. And it doesn't really stick out as a synthesizer, but that is apparently what it is. And also in the fade out, they. Um, had him do this sort of ribbon controller thing, like just sliding this sort of white noise up and down. That sounds a little bit like um, "I Want You She's So Heavy" from Robbie Robe which obviously wasn't out at this point. But it's quite similar to that, and this sort of like cacophony of of noise generated by the the synth. Um, and
1: the fade out is kind of an unusual one as well. Yeah, Dennis's approach to fades is very different from Brian's. But it, it, like Brian's songs, he he has this vocal round going while the instruments kind of repeat their pattern
2: yeah the way Brian would tend to build things up sort of in a fade out or you know he'd have these sort of like quite pretty melodies going Dennis would quite often in his in his fade sort of have this sort of like just big wall of noise like kind of you know, just, it doesn't like develop so much you know you, you get things like um, Time on uh, Pacific Ocean Blues is a bit like that as well Dennis yeah. wasn't quite as elaborate with his fade out but he was you know you still got into the whole tag thing that Brian um, sort of I guess pioneered where he would have this sort of big thematic fade where it sort of becomes a new piece of music and then just keeps going on and on. I
3: always
2: find this this fade out kind of kind of a letdown like i wish it went into another verse or something like that it's sort of like it starts off really strong with dennis and carl that great sort of lead vocal part and then it sort of just like keeps going and going and it, it's sort of the same way i feel about some of his things he did in, in the late 70s but it's it's still cool
1: and his fades always kind of involve some like yelling yeah <laughs> just singing really <laughs> pretty, high pretty much yeah <laughs> and loud <laughs> it's uh Weird little song. I don't listen to it that much. It's obviously not as good as Breakaway, in my opinion. I don't know if other people, people feel the same way. I mean,
2: yeah. I mean, I'm on the I'm on the same page as you. But this is a song that's like yeah, got a lot of um, fans behind it, and it was sort of um, it's it's definitely. I mean, I think it's one of Dennis's best from this year, and it definitely deserved a place on an album. It, it shouldn't have been buried just as a B side. Um, it ended up fitting quite well together with Breakaway in a sort of odd way, you know. It's like the whole celebrate the news and Breakaway. It's about, you know, thematically they both kind of fit together in a. Yeah. It seems like an accident, but both these songs do really belong um, neatly on, yeah, a, on a single. Yeah, lyrically, yeah, they're very yeah. similar.
1: Uh, one thing with the song, I, I I don't know what it is, but it is, the melody just doesn't really stick out to me. It's not no. super catchy. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Um, I think I've been spoiled by. It all the Beach Boys work thus far being uh, made by Brian Wilson, who writes the, you know, catchiest, hookiest melodies. And um, it's hard to do that. But yeah, this one just doesn't really stick out that much to me.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, if you're missing a Brian Wilson melody, um, we've got one coming up with the next song that the recorders. Although in a kind of <laughs> unusual, I mean, not not directly um, a Brian Wilson thing, but... Anyway, so yeah, um, 2020 got released in um, early February. They did some show. They did some shows in Texas, and then the yeah, I Can Hear Music single came out at the start of March when they were working on to celebrate the news. And then a few days later, on March fifth, they began work on Loop de Loop, sort of Al's kitchen sink um, <laughs> nightmare that will haunt him for the next few decades. Begins, <laughs> and this is a complicated production to talk about. We talked about it a little bit with Cell Plane song last year, um, but yeah, this is a, this is kind of the new single, I guess. I mean, it was talked about in a memo from Carl Engerman as the new single, replacing Sam Miguel um, in the Beach Boys' minds for whatever reason, because this is clearly not as commercial a song as Sam Miguel. Um, I guess, yeah, we're gonna have to spend some a while talking about Loopy Loop. I'm not really sure (laughs) where to begin with it.
1: (laughs) Well, um, it's credited to Brian, Carl, and Al. Brian and Carl writing Sailplane Song. And I I guess it was sort of written by Brian and Al, because Bruce said as much in that article. And Al said that Brian titled this song. So to some degree, Brian had written this song called Loop-de-loop. And Al Al was the only one who, who brought it to the studio, Brian didn't play or sing or arrange any of this song but I guess this is what he was he was working on um, you know just at his piano.
0: What I did was that was I borrowed that idea from Brian. See everybody our whole our whole energy source seems to be based around Brian but he had just sketched it out on the piano and then dropped it and I said geez this, this is too good to pass up so I, I whipped it out did it down at the studio and we came up with this Incredible track and and
2: idea. Yeah, that's interesting. Al had this thing quite recently where he said that Brian is the one he retitled at Loopy Loop. Um, I don't know if I believe him because Al says a lot of things, but because it (laughs) sounds like a sort of dumb al jardine title but i feel like if,
1: if al jardine was the one who titled it he wouldn't give credit for that that's to someone true. else
2: yeah that, that's a good point so anyway <laughs> al writes these new lyrics to sail plane song and decides to take it in a whole new direction where it previously it was about this sort of spooky like sort of like chill psychedelic thing about a, like a, a glide plane um on the ocean al sort of turned it into this circus song about like an acrobatic um, biplane and he has this whole, whole sort of like little character story uh, with um, you know the laughing lady and all the, these sorts of things and he really took it in a, in a new direction that I think Brian wasn't a fan of Brian kind of like has been very dismissive of this song over the years and famously sort of just didn't want to be involved with it really Al was kind of trying to get him enthusiastic whenever he could but Brian just wasn't interested I don't think he really liked what Al did with this thing
3: No. at It's not good enough. Yeah. We want something that's good out there. it
2: probably yeah. And you know, it's it's very different from what Brian originally came up with. Um, but that's—I don't think that's a reason to put it down because it is brilliant. It's just incredibly Al Jardine and very not Brian Wilson. Um, it's a whole new thing, and Al's not really been a producer up to this point. You know, he did Cotton Fields with Brian because that was the song that he wanted to record. Brian arranged it, but he sort of saw it through with him this is our sort of first attempt at really leading a project in the studio and he did not like go gentle with it he went all the way <laughs> in um <laughs> in what they did so so this is the first time they've recorded at western in a while the back of western records studio three um hal blaine's there there's a photo of um al and hal in in western al and hal that's a good combo should have Okay, I'm moving on. Um, <laughs> so, so, so they had quite a big group of musicians on this. They had Bruce playing um, piano. Don Randy playing piano. He hasn't been on a Beach Boys session in a while. I oh, know there's Neverland Not to Love as well. Jarl Dragon is playing the uh, Fender Rhodes electric piano. Ed Carter from the touring group is on guitar again. Bobby West, another famous LA session bassist who hasn't really played on a Beach Boys session before. He's playing bass here. Hal Blaine is on drums. Frank Cap is on timpani. And Carl is there um playing the tambourine and all this this is produced by al this is also sort of a group effort like with carl and bruce sort of supporting him and arrangement ideas contributed by the studio musicians and steve dasper had lots to, this, to do with this as well this is sort of the era where steve dasper is really getting creatively involved in beach boy's work almost to, sort of to the level of being a co-producer um you know which he yeah. was acknowledged for yeah. the spring album and even, you know, Brian said things like Despo was kind of like a co-producer, and he said the same about Chuck Brits. A few of these engineers that they work with really sort of got into, into a creative role beyond just recording them, and Despo was definitely there with it, because he, you know, the Beach Boys had sort of these sonic ideas, sort of these vague concepts, and he could figure out in a technical way how to execute them. And especially with this song, with all the, the way it was, everything was kind of recorded in stereo, with the mix kind of in mind, and you know, the sound effects, he you know had a, had a lot of input on this thing. So that origin- I'm just going to kind of breeze through all the things they added to this track because it was a long like very extensive production. On that, that uh, March 5th session they added some more piano stuff including um, these tack piano like triplet parts, there's a glockenspiel, there's kind of like marching band cymbals and then the next day back at Western they added some more stuff onto it which was kind of like overdubbed on top of the stereo track um carl playing this great like leslie lead guitar which sounds like fantastic jimmy bond is playing upright bass there are some flutes on there which i believe roger newman kind of helped arranged um and there's this, a siren whistle like in heroes and villains which dasper said that uh, was al's thing al had that whistle and he brought it in and played that and then they uh, seem to have done the vocals at weston on uh, march 7th and then um I guess we can talk about a little bit about later. And they added some sound effects along here as well, like some audience sounds, um, some chickens, you know, the, the standard. It's make it on <laughs> like a circus. And then on March 10th, they went and recorded the actual sounds of a, re- of a real biplane. Um, Al had this neighbor called Kim Williams who had like a, a red biplane in, in his front yard. So they went up there on March 10th and recorded this real thing like in stereo with Desper, you know, doing all of his... microphone stuff and you know having having a whale of a time this is what he was born to do is just record biplanes in as much detail as possible in stereo um
1: for, for like the sound effects at the start of the song this song is just insane i mean the the lengths that they went to is like above and beyond what they did on any any brian wilson song
2: it's very much just throwing everything in and seeing what works um and then yeah so sunset sound on march 11th they added even more stuff This is um, like a simultaneous overdub of a lot of people playing together. Bruce played some extra tack piano in the intro. Al played banjo and Carl played a ukulele kind of strumming together. There's a bowed upright bass plot played by Don Bagley. Um, A trumpet played by Bill Peterson. And um, another trombone played by Jack Redmond, who's doing all these kind of like droning trombone parts. And I should have mentioned earlier as well, there's like a clarinet and uh, trumpets and more trombone and tuba earlier in the production as well that um i think was just arranged by the studio musicians like they were paid a little bit extra for that like roger newman and bill peterson were given some extra money that i think was probably you know it's often talked about by some of the musicians that brian was unique in the way that he would come in and have to you know he would dictate everything exactly that he wanted to them but a lot of people in the sixties at the time would kind of come in and the musicians would kind of have to invent their own parts. And I think that was kind of what was happening here.
1: Yeah. A lot, a lot of stuff on this song and all for it to not come out. I mean, Al tinkered with this for decades. He added Christmas lyrics in the late seventies, tried to put on a <laughs> Christmas album that didn't happen. And then when they went to release it for the, um, endless harmony soundtrack in the late nineties, he <laughs> was still not satisfied. So he and Steve Desper got together and they, continued to work on the song in 1998 which is crazy because that's 30 years after it was started they added
2: even more drums on top of it Steve Dasper was playing the part of a carnival barker in the beginning and then Al did some new vocals it's crazy The vocals on this again, no Brian. Um, I'm not sure if Dennis is on this or not, but again, definitely Bruce, Al, and Carl are on here. Mike's got a bass vocal, um, great one, the, a really great bass vocal. Uh, loop de loop flying in an airplane, like lyrical beautiful. genius, beautiful. And then <laughs> the thing that, um, I think Al said that he wasn't satisfied with, and that maybe the reason that he kept it from being released for quite a while is, um, he wasn't satisfied with his lead vocal. He wanted Brian to sing it. That was his kind of plan here, but Brian didn't want to. He just wasn't interested. So I'll try to basically do by like sort of what he considers a replica Brian Wilson in the verses by singing um, these really high, these really highly vocal parts. It, it's kind of interesting the way that he does it. Kind of like he sings kind of like a regular range part, and then he kind of doubles it an octave above, like singing right at the very top of his range. And I think that sort of really stretched him. And he, he sounds good on it, but I, I guess he, I think he was just self-conscious about that because it's not the sort of vocal he would usually do. Um, and it also doesn't help that he added all these key changes in the song as well. From um, <laughs> he still keeps going songs higher. To, he keeps going higher and higher until he's like, he, he's, he's singing like this high F sharp that's just in, in crazy, he sounds like he's going to pass out. <laughs> <laughs> So not quite done with this yet, on uh, March 18th uh, Al took this over and dubbed it to a new generation tape and had Paul Beaver play these uh, Moog synthesizer parts which were apparently just like kind of sound effects and things and they also edited out the first chorus but this wasn't used, this was a tape that kind of just went, um, you know, they, they didn't stick with it and then they went back to the old tape to, to do the final mix but it's, you know, just the amount of stuff that they were throwing on the song was crazy. Like. Just on top of all of that, like you've, just a complete cacophony of noise. Um, let's throw a synthesizer on, and have it do sound effects as well, and then you know. <laughs> so then they did the final mix on March 25th, also at Capitol Studios. Again, you'll notice none of these things were done at Brian's house. Everything was being recorded at the outside studios at this point. That they could, I guess, they were just using because they could afford it. While uh, they were still on the capital contract, and they knew that they could just do anything and give them the bill. Um,
1: yeah. So so and- yeah. <laughs> that final which, mix is, is the one on, on feel flows.
2: Yeah. Which was, um, I th- yeah. So, so, so this was almost going to be a single for a while. There's a, a, a memo from Carl Engerman, um, the, the capital guy, I need to get this up to read it. I'll get Wyatt to read it probably because he's, he does the readings best, but, uh,
0: yeah, get this? Wyatt to read it. Dear Nick, it was good speaking with you today. And I am happy to hear that in spite of the most recent billboard article, You and the group still have a desire to remain with capital if something satisfactory can be worked out. I, too, hope that we have enough hits out of the product that you plan to deliver to us between now and the end of the contract to give us cause to reevaluate our most recent offer. Confirming our discussion, and as a reminder, you're going to talk with the boys about delivering the next single record by next Monday, April 21st, and the album, The Fading Rock Group Revival, or Reverberation, by May 1st. Again, I want to tell you how enthused I am about the single Loop-de-loop, Flip-Flop, and I'm most anxious to hear some of the things the boys have been working on for the next album. Sincerely, Carl Ingemann.
2: Just insane. Like, the fact that this was the single and there's a guy from Capitol who listens to it and goes, you know what, this is fine. I'm, in si- I'm excited about
1: this. <laughs> I know, yeah. Well, I don't know. How do you think Loop-de-loop would have done as a single?
2: Not well. <laughs> I think our sticking point was he just didn't like his own lyrics that he came up with. And he preferred the original ones done by Brian, you know, on Brian and Carl. And, you know, in, in 98, when they, when he redid some vocals, he ended up re-singing really the first verse with those original lyrics. And there's another thing in, the, I think, the early 80s in a fan magazine where he was talking about this ecological concept album that he and Mike had been planning. And uh, part of it was uh, he wanted to do loop-de-loop with new uh, eco-friendly lyrics. I, I can't imagine what that would have sounded like, but hey, there it is. God, how how many times has he tried to go back to this song? Too many, too many. I mean, Santa's Got an Airplane is horrendous. <laughs> That's a, one of the one of the worst Christmas songs they ever did. <laughs> <laughs> it's slightly better than uh, Santa's On His Way. It's like a little less phoned in than that one.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, Loop De Loop was scheduled to be their single... They were supposed to deliver it to Capitol, but they didn't. Um, There's a few more album tracks that they started working on, just the backing tracks, um, all without Brian's involvement and all that would later be finished with Brian's involvement. So we won't talk about them too much here. But just to give that context, uh, Dennis started recording Forever. He did the backing track around this time in March '69. Uh, Carl produced a backing track for All I Wanna Do. That's the version on Sunflower. And that's a Brian and Mike song that we talked about how they recorded it for 2020. It's got a lot of fans, and I don't know if a lot of people know that Carl produced that track. And then another one was a Bruce song called Dairdrie. And these are all songs that wouldn't get any vocals recorded for a while, so... We'll talk about them in more detail in the next season of Ceylon.
2: I'm just um, sorry. While you've been talking about that, I've got to go back to Lufthu Loop for a second. Um, I'm just. Oh no! Of course sc- you do. Sc-
1: You're just like Al Jardine.
2: Sorry. Yeah, I know. I just scrolled down and uh, reread this um, Al quote about Lufthu Loop. Where he says, um, he, he says uh, Brian retitled Lufthu Loop, and then he says, I took it one step further because I had a neighbor at the time, and he owned a biplane, and it sat in his driveway. Um, he was an airline pilot. That's how that happened. He lived in Mandeville Canyon. I have no idea how he managed to get that plane there. Now that I think about it, um, I don't know why I found that so funny—the fact that Al, fifty years later is like, hang on a second, how the hell did he have a plane in his driveway in the first place? Um, <laughs> anyway, it's yeah, funny. Um, yeah, let, let's move on. So yeah, we've, we'll skip over forever, and all I want to do on Deirdre for now, just because it's easier to talk about them along with some of the sunflower stuff when they added vocals to it. But that's—they're all kind of part of this era and they were all intended for the final Capital album when they assembled it, like, a lot later in 1970. Yes. For the sake of not going on too long, I think we'll go right ahead to Breakaway and Brian coming back into it, where there's a lot of things
1: to talk about. So, the Beach Boys were obviously in talks with Capitol about releasing a new single, which was loop-de-loop at this time. Uh, but unbeknownst to Capitol, uh, their plans changed a little bit when Murray called up Brian and... He called up Brian, who had not been working on songs for the Beach Boys, and proposed writing a song together.
0: Breakaway, my father called me up, my dad, not my father, my dad called me up and said, I have an idea for a song called Breakaway, and, and I go... How'd you ever think of that title? He goes, I got it from Joey Bishop. because He used to go, we're gonna break away now and we'll, come, we'll be right back. So he said, let's get together and write a song called Breakaway. So he drove to my house, we got together and, and I start playing and he goes, I start making some melody. He goes, he did most of the lyrics, you know, and uh, I did the melody. And I like to think
2: that this is entirely because Brian wanted to prevent loop-de-loop Loop from being released, so he decided to come out of retirement <laughs> and, and write and produce a hit single. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about the uh, the recording of this song. So this was recorded at ID Sound, which mm-hmm. they used for um, a number of songs that Brian did in the previous year. Yeah, this is pretty much a studio that,
2: that Brian liked to go to, and uh, the other Beach Boys didn't really bother with. He did like the Ron Wilson stuff there, he did Cotton Fields, some of the Friends album. Um, so this is Brian sort of in safe territory And he, he did this sort of like It's interesting the way that like Kind of everybody else's activity sort of stops As soon as Brian came back and was recording a new song Because obviously I mean it's only at the end of March And you know in like In modern times that, that's nothing you know Brian was last active on the 2020 album In like November last year And now it's March and he's doing a new song But for, for the Beach Boys For Brian to have been away from the studio For this long while they've all been in there recording And doing vocals without him it was like, you know, everything moved so quickly for them, for his absence yeah. at this point. It was a significant thing. So when he came back, it's like everything stopped and they put all their effort into, you know, the new Brian song. And I think everyone was quite enthusiastic about it. So, yeah, they got together and um, recorded this thing. For the 31st of March, right before the Beach Boys were going to go away for a tour. I don't think any of the other Beach Boys were there apart from maybe Carl playing guitar, but we're not completely sure if he was on the session or not and it was with quite a large group of musicians it's quite a sort of like mid-60s production it's um sort of like kind of a hybrid of the recent things he's been doing and in some ways it also sounds like something off like the beach boys today or summer days and summer nights in the arrangement Mm -hmm. and uh i think brian said it was inspired by the monkeys as well i think i think you can hear that in there too and there's there's some murray said that that he wrote most of the music and murray wrote most of the lyrics but that means murray did have some input into the into the music too and murray was there producing this with brian a bit like on some of the friends stuff um it came out credited as produced by Brian wilson and murray wilson even though brian was credited as the arranger um so there's a piano and organ there's uh, brian and a session guy called mike lang was playing on this i'm not sure who did which one um there's an acoustic guitar which may have been played by carl he's got david cohen and mike anthony playing these sort of like country-ish um, bluesy lead guitars, sort of just riffing. Ray Paulman's playing the six-string bass, Jimmy Bond on upright bass. Um, Alan Brenneman is playing drums. He's a guy who Brian hasn't worked with before. Um, Alan Estes is playing a vibra-slap and castanets. The vibra-slap is kind of um, a sort of, you know, there's the, it's, it's a thing that Brian hasn't really worked with very much before. It's on a couple of his productions, but that kind of really... It's, um, it's a very prominent sound here and then he's also got this sort of like little horn squad consisting of Virgil Evans Mar- Marvin Brown J McLeary, he was always on stuff May Hirsch and uh, Bill Green um, and the, the horns are like quite interesting very sort of like late 60s kind of like soft pop stuff but also this you know it's kind of kind of also typical of Brian's mid 60s things it's it's a weird hybrid this song of of, of kind of different eras and then on top of that, they also overdubbed this very interesting acoustic guitar part played by David Cohen. This is like real sort of choppy staccato kind of thing propelling the rhythm, which is... I haven't really heard anything like that before. I don't know where that came from, but it's a real sort of unique sound that gives the the track like um, an interesting sort of color to it. And then they added some extra sort of drum fills and some double the castanets. And then Brian also played another piano part.
1: sort of halfway between 2020 and Sunflower but it also has you know some elements of mid-60s kind of classic Beach Boys summer pop and then it's also got you know Murray was working on his own music at this time which is very soft pop late 60s and that creeps into the the horn arrangement a bit and the vocal arrangement and um yeah it's just kind of a weird track um, I really like it. I think uh, this song is mostly about the vocal arrangement, which we'll talk about in a second, but I think it's a pretty cool, cool track too.
2: Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the first time Brian in quite a while was, was doing something that was like consciously like a sort of competitive poppy single. He wanted this to be a a single. Like, yeah. It's not like Do It Again, which sort of just was an idea that then that they kind of rolled with. And then, um, been way too long was kind of an artsy type type of thing compared to some of those some of his other work you know the songs like songs like time to get alone and friends he w- was designed from the beginning to be singles but he wasn't like thinking competi- competitively like this isn't going to be a chart topper this isn't going to be like a hit yeah. anywhere it's it's sort of just like they were just good songs with sort of elaborate productions but this is like he's he, he's trying to do something that's kind of like a 1965 Beach Boy song almost, but like, you know, obviously it's not 1965 anymore and it has matured since then. Um, so it does come out sounding like, yeah. this, this, like this sort of hybrid of eras. And it's, um, I, I guess it's, it's sort of like a return for Brian for this sort of upbeat pop sound that he kind of carries on in the sunflower era and uh, develops a little bit more, but this is, um, definitely a new era of, of his music. It's, it's, um, I, wouldn't group it with the 68 stuff. It's definitely moving much towards, much more towards the stuff you do on Sunflower.
1: Yeah. You, you make a good point there. I mean, when was the last time he tried to make a song to have a hit, you know, Smile, Heroes and Villains.
2: Yes. Heroes and Villains. Everything
1: since then had been, you know, um, Wild Honey, they called it music for Brian's cool out by just Brian kind of hanging out and, and making music that he, he liked and that didn't really reach the charts, which did bum him out. But he wasn't really trying. He wasn't, yeah. you know, trying to beat the Beatles like he was with Pet Sounds and and everything in '66. And this is something that he really kind of desperately wanted to to be a, a radio friendly song that that climbed the charts. And we'll we'll read what he uh, he said at a press conference. <laughs> about this song and about the state of the beach boys in, yeah. in a minute here.
2: <laughs> but it, it sounds like it's, it sounds very like compatible with what was on the charts in 1969. I mean, obviously with a sort of like very unique Brian Wilson, twist on it um, with the vocal arrangement, but it it's like a contemporary sort of like feeling upbeat pop song of the times. Like it, you know, it's not like good Vib- mm-hmm. heroes and villains was kind of like artsy music, I guess for Brian good vibrations was, was like that but good vibrations was like, uplifting beach boysy type song and this is kind of the first time since that that he's really gone for for something that's going to fit in with the times and and try and be a, a big single um, mm-hmm. i think he was realistic about his, its chances of actually doing that which we'll get to um, soon um but yeah this this is kind of like he was treating this like a big return to to Brian Wilson the producer and Steve Dasper did a really good stu- um, study video on this if you can find it anywhere where he talked a little bit about the making of this song, and it just gave a great picture of, you know, the way that um, this came together, because the Beach Boys went out for a tour um, on um, the early April, so I don't know if they heard the song for a while until, until you know, they, they actually got back from tour, apart from maybe Carl who was on the session, and when they did, it was... Described as being kind of like the old days. You know, Brian got them around the piano and showed them how the song went. They were all getting excited and thought it sounded like a really good song. He was throwing out parts and be like, hey, Mike, here's your part. Here's you know, Al, here's what you should do. And I was singing it like this. And it's like really like a return to the old days, kind of briefly. um And the way Brian went about preparing the song as well was very much like kind of like the sort of thing you do for pet sounds, where he basically went in and did, like Sleep John B., he did like a guide vocal so he could show. You know, a sort of demo vocal that was deliberately going to be like that. It wasn't for release, it was um, a sort of template for the band. And this is on um, April 2nd, Still a Daddy Sound. Brian went in and did what came out on the Endless Harmony soundtrack, um, where he just sang his, a solo lead vocal onto it and then doubled some parts and did some, some and vocal parts. And it's really great that we have this. He didn't do this with many productions at the time, but this is obviously an important one.
3: Time will not wait for me.
2: Brian's voice in the demo is kind of an interesting thing like it's you know it's a little bit thinner than it was previously. It's weaker yeah, it's, it's weaker, yeah. but I think that's just because he's been out of practice he hasn't been singing professionally very much in the last few months at all. Um, and yeah I think- he
1: hasn't he hasn't sang since uh, you know some of the 2020 backing vocal stuff and then yeah. since then when was the last time he did a lead vocal. Exactly
2: you know? yeah but, but when he kind of like belts out the um, obviously it's a guide vocal as well he's not putting like his all into making it sound professional but it still sounds good and when he kind of belts out the chorus and really hits the high notes it sounds just like wouldn't it be nice or something and it's really kind of a thrill to hear that back again because he hasn't done that sort of vocal in quite a long time yeah yeah it's it's nice to hear yeah so, so the beach boys come back in um the middle of april I guess Brian shows them the song, and then I think it's a Gold Star, uh, which is where Murray was doing quite a lot of his work. They went and did a reduction mix, which was just bouncing it down to a second generation in preparation for the Beach Boys working with this. And Steve Dasper said that he, you know, was taking notes on how many tracks were going to be needed for all the vocals and stuff and how to lay this thing out. Again, he was very sort of intensely involved in the production end of, th- end of things at this point. And he was kind of cr- creating a plan for how this was going to come together, you know, how things could be panned around and how to preserve a sort of stereo mix, which is kind of interesting. You know, they'd never have to worry about those sorts of things before this point. And then they went and did the vocals over um, I don't know how long, you know. They didn't document these sessions. We don't know if they did them at Brian's house or if they were at other studios. Um, And it's like a really, like, very big elaborate group of vocal arrangement if you want to stop talking about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, this is kind of the start of, of that. Brian we'll talk about on Sunflower, he, he really started to layer his vocal arrangements rather than having it be, you know, the case where you can get all the guys around a microphone or a couple microphones and sing the backing vocals and double them and then have someone add a lead. He wasn't kind of, he wasn't really doing that anymore and, and he had all these dynamic parts and, and um, you know, more melody within the arrangement and it would be a more dynamic song too because he'd have different backing arrangements and different verses and choruses and then the tag just keeps building and building and you have all these all these harmonies on top of each other yeah so what what they did at first was Brian did the lead vocal on the verses and eventually this got replaced by Carl singing um singing the verses with Brian singing just part of this, part of the first verse
3: Time will not wait for me time is my destiny why change the part of me that has to be free
1: the but Brian did this vocal first and Al Jardine sang the chorus and he's he's got a really really strong lead vocal there i really think Al sounds great on this song yeah and um and then they did the, uh, the choruses, and according to the Beach Boys, Murray Wilson helped vo- um, arrange some of these vocals, or, or at least took Brian's parts and kind of helped to assign them to different people, and, and he really produced these sessions with Brian. So this is, yeah. like friends, this is Brian and Murray working together as co-producers on a song. Mm.
3: And break away from that empty life when my world is new.
2: Yeah, I think the, the way Carl described it is um, Murray kind of turned the studio into an ashtray while he was there. Um, and then <laughs> what Desper kind of remembered is they um, were working on the song all day and then they heard that Murray was coming up to the session and they kind of got all tense. And then as soon as Murray was, was gone, they replaced everything that was done while Murray was there. I don't know if that's true because they obviously did re-record some vocals in this that you can keep bleeding through at some point, but Murray himself actually sings on this song in, in the fade-out. He does, yes. yeah I' am free to ride ride a wave or two like why <laughs> He's hey, the, it's so singing, it's so murray
1: um singing about surfing on this on this song I think the uh lyrics and spots are a little funky time will not wait for me.
0: time is my destiny. I don't like the uh, I don't like where Brian voiced our voices in some of the verses it was a little low
1: the choruses are fabulous uh, I mean it's a, it's a it's a great piece of work lyrics a little funky in spots once we get going I mean everybody sings it great you know I I kind of like most of it but not all of it let's talk about some of the vocal arrangement I guess
2: just going through the parts I mean the chorus it's like a very classic it's got kind of the feel of maybe something from like the smile era it's a very unique inventive use of vocals here where it's kind of i don't know i find it kind of corny the whole break break shake away and didi what i want to do sort of thing like i don't know what's going on there but it's it's definitely like a hook that kind of pulls (laughs) you in and brian's been very inventive with these parts um the verses and the bridges have like all these great sort of like thick harmony stacks um with the whole group singing that kind of like they just move around through the whole thing it's it's um it's kind of rare for a, a beach boy song in this way to have vocals going through the entire track basically like there's an cappella mix out there that um and it, it's supported pretty much as a thing without a backing track because there's always backing vocals it's it's a very rich vocal arrangement um in the the second bridge, the one where Mike comes in and kind of sings his little lead part, there's all these different tracks doing different things, and then the fade out kind of goes crazy. It's um one of oh, I love fade-out on this yeah one. one of Brian's most elaborate fade outs, but less so with kind of like the counterpoint that he would get into more in the in the '70s, and this is more just like big thick sort of stacks of harmonies together, a bit bit like Good Vibrations of the chorus.
1: Yeah, um, so before we talk about that though, the chorus is. That first chorus is really great. Um, I really love the the vocals there. And especially at the end of the chorus, where you have Mike doing that that bass vocal on top of... Yeah. (laughs) um, On top of another melody, which is harmonized, and then there's another melody that Brian and Al are singing. And it's really, really, really cool. And then the second chorus, I think this is the one that Bruce is talking about when he says the parts are voiced too low. They kind of repeat the same arrangement, but... Uh, you know several intervals down and they they're just kind of like uh chanting and and they sound really funny really low down but it's it's uh it's it's a strange choice it's but it's, that is it's an more old one
2: that's the sort of thing that I can imagine <laughs> would come from the mind behind the kfc jingle you know <laughs>
3: break wake shake wake break break away do I do I wanna do Break away for each happy day as my life turns around
1: <laughs> yeah this this sounds like maybe what what uh, the beach boys were talking about when they said Murray arranged some of these parts and um you know he's always complaining about them being shrill so it's I mean it's interesting I'm, I like it. really interesting little little piece there. it's really strange and kind of quirky and funny. But uh, yeah, the fade out is, is really great. You have um, and there's a, there's a few unused parts there too, mm. because Brian sort of took the individual tracks and kept some of them down at first, and then slowly faded them all up. Um, you know, in the dynamic way that he does his his mixes compared to how we were talking about Dennis doing his tracks. But uh, yeah, there's the oh boy, you jump for joy when you break away kind of unison uh part and then there's the they all sing just break away while murray has that bass vocal where he's singing about surfing for some reason (laughs) yeah Um, um, that's definitely a murray murray wilson idea
2: and then and then on the uh, the same track as i guess the lead vocal you've got mike doing a different bass vocal there that's like the same notes as murray um but to a different rhythm with different lyrics where it's um what is he saying i've got to hear something yeah he says um Mike singing, "Come on, be free to take a break away." Uh, now, won't you come on, be free to take a break away? While Murray singing the different words to the same note, so that, that's kind of an interesting blend when you put it together. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like it was one or the other that they were doing, and then ended up just kind of coming out at the same time in the mix. I mean, Brian does never really does put them up at the same time. They kind of he kind of like has the vocals take turns almost. If if you listen to the uh, the alternate mix where they're all up. And then you listen to the the released single. You can hear him kind of soloing all the different parts using the faders. Yeah. Uh, and then there's that incredible five-part harmony where they all just sing together at the end. Um, yeah,
2: that's a, that sounds amazing. That's a great, great vocal moment.
1: Yeah, and Brian loved that part so much that he later had Steve Desper create a loop of it for him. This is another one that Brian kind of messed with over over time. Uh, Steve Desper said that he was still changing it even after it had been released, um, and I think that's somewhat true because he he did that vocal, then Carl replaced it and did his lead, and then when they remixed this song again in 1970 for the um, this you know hi- uh, hypothetical Last Capital album that never got submitted. Uh, it used Brian's vocal. So he was still, you know, not completely satisfied with the final product or at least was just still interested in, in working with the song. And, uh, I don't know, kind of interesting there.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is um, it's, it is interesting because I think Al said that Brian, um, they considered Brian kind of underproduced it at the last minute, which I think is referring to the way he did the the fade out, kind of dropped things out I and mean, made it build more dynamically because there was a different mix um just looking at the timeline here they originally had this thing mixed down with brian's vocal in the first verse which i just want to say as well compared to the demo vocal he did he sounds so much more like assured and professional on you know the proper vocal with the rest of the group and it's just cool to have brian singing mm-hmm. this sort of lead vocal at this point and i think he sounds fantastic i know you one of our like like eternal debates is you prefer Um, Brian's lead vocal, uh, no sorry, you prefer Carl's lead vocal, I prefer Brian's lead vocal, the first verse. you're wrong yeah it's okay we can we can just accept that um i think yeah i think brian sounds fantastic. no no it's it's
1: okay it's okay to be wrong you know that you know that carl sings it better oh shut up okay anyway
2: (laughs) let's move on um but yeah brian was seemingly quite self-conscious about his voice at this point like he was there's quite a few vocals you find especially going in the sunflower era where brian would sing something and then it wouldn't appear in the final mix or you know carl would do it instead and this is i mean i guess the first of those where brian had his lead vocal in the first part of the song, and then it was mixed on May 13th. Um, And the Hawthorne mix that came out in 2001 was kind of like a a replication of of that mix. It's a very similar sort of balance. And then two days later on May 15th is when they did uh, the revised mix, which has Carl singing the first verse, and now Brian redoing his part, but just kind of that first little bridge bit. Um, it's just interesting that Brian was kind of shying away from having himself be featured in, on a song in that way. He kind of, It's like he sort of wanted to fade into the background and be unnoticed. Um, mm-hmm. And they also sped the song up a little bit for the final mix as well. Um, Brian's vocal can be remixed because yeah, of like um, a fluke, which never really happened elsewhere with the Beach Boys, where someone had the wisdom to make a mo- uh, like a safety copy of the, re- the original multitrack with Brian's vocal. I don't know why that happened, because that didn't tend to happen at other times but like thank god that it did because it means we do still have brian's vocal on the multi-track
1: yeah i, I wonder if if brian consciously did that so that he could Maybe, have the option later to to go back to his own vocal instead of carl's because they didn't have enough room on the on the eight track with all the different harmonies to have two doubled lead vocals and still get a, a worthwhile stereo mix could but be. yeah this is um this is this is a great song um and this is you know he recorded the lead, didn't use it, and this is kind of the period where he just stops doing lead vocals. Uh, he had his his parts on Friends, and that's kind of all. Uh, he never really, you know, there's a few songs he does that for on Sunflower, but he they don't go on the album. So yeah, he kind of pulls his voice back into the into the the backing mix a bit and features Alan Carl and. And Mike more often uh, but he does get that that first half or the second half of the first verse there the the very same love that passed me by and he sounds great there
2: and that this, you know this, this song has kind of an interesting legacy i mean it came out on uh, the spir- spirit of america um comp is it was mm-hmm. like one of the only things from that era and um i think that sort of like helped its sort of longevity um mike said in an interview at the time that it was his favorite thing they'd done in years which would make sense you know it's it, i think this is definitely a song that would appeal to mike he said that he didn't really have much to do with it apart from singing on it but he was a big fan of the song um i'll kind of have that comment about brian underproducing it at the last minute which was i think was referring to kind of stripping away the parts at the end instead of letting it all run and just be kind of like this powerful ending it kind of like gets more subtle and i do prefer it going all at once but it, you know i i understand where um I understand why Brian wanted to change it. And I can understand where I was coming from as well, where he should have just been like a, a sort of like throw everything in and let it be mm-hmm. sort of like carry it to the ending. And I think Bruce had this kind of insightful comment. Um He said he, th- he thinks Murray kind of forced it into being a good record. Um I mean, obviously Brian doesn't need anyone to force a ge- force him into making a good record, but you know, I think Murray probably did kind of bring out that competitive thing in him where like without murray's influence maybe you wouldn't have tried to make it such a commercial kind of song brian didn't do a b-side for this they just used dennis's song celebrate the news which is uh, kind of nice to see a brian single get paired with a dennis song um and then uh, <laughs> just as they were getting ready to go for a tour in um, england and europe brian spontaneously on the 27th of may decided to hold a press conference which is something that he doesn't usually do and i guess yeah do you want to talk about that a bit <laughs>
1: Yeah, this press conference that he did is kind of um, a little bit insane, but um, uh, Disc and Music Echo uh, published this and uh, said, why we're in such a struggle for cash by Brian Wilson. (laughs) (laughs) And he just kind of started talking about how the group is almost broke and they desperately need Breakaway to be a hit if they want to have any money. And let me read some of the Some of the quotes from from this. Let me see here. It's the kind of disc that will either be a smash or be a miserable flop. Lay a stone dead egg. And the British tour will, I hope, help our waning popularity. I've always said be honest with your fans. I don't see why I should lie and say everything is rosy when it's not. Sure, when we were making millions, I said we were. Now the shoe is on the other foot. When we started earning good money, it was the same old story all over again. A lot of guys started throwing their money around, buying cars, houses, and other things. And pretty soon the cash started dwindling. So, uh, I, I forget. I forget exactly what the story was. Will maybe you you know more about this? But they were set to to switch their contract to another label. I forget which label it yeah, was. it was but... Dutch
2: Gramophone, and they had a they were scheduled for. <laughs> there a, we go. A meeting with them um, in Germany on the fifteenth of June, um, while they were on the tour. And it's like, I mean, the, kind of the vibe got from this is Brian was. Basically sabotaging the rest of the band because he didn't want to sign to a new label. Um, whether or not that's true, who knows? But it would be the sort of thing that Brian would pull, and there's no and you know there's no reason for him to do this. It's, it comes from out of the blue, and it's clear that the other guys weren't let in on this because they. All did interviews in uh, magazines following this, including Nick Grillo saying, basically, no, look, we're fine. Brian's kind of just insulated from these things, and he, you know, he panics <laughs> when he he doesn't have that much money, and you know, he doesn't really understand what's going on financially, and he he just likes to to feel sorry for himself. So they kind of did some damage control in the wake of this um, article, um, which is such a strange. It, yeah you know I, I, we say that every episode about at least five things that something really strange happens but this is a weird thing for him <laughs> to you know he's brian's gone pretty much press silent since 67 and then he he invites these journalists to him house, to his house to just go like you know look everything's fucked <laughs> um, so there you go um brian sends them away t- to to deal with that when they go on that, go on that tour yep yeah and he also mentions this intriguing thing um in the article as well well towards the end of the disc article it says that they're considering doing a soft drink commercial something they've never considered doing before but i will say that uh cool cool water was
0: also but i don't think we ever released it it's the real thing coca-cola we had a whole coca-cola commercial around cool cool water
1: but we never uh we never completed the uh, deal with coke yeah, that that was that was a
2: legit thing that they were trying to do. Um, on the twenty second of May, "Cool Water" was copyrighted to Brian. Um, you know, did, this is a song he hadn't touched in a while, but they re, they got it properly published, I guess, because they were planning on doing this commercial. And it's I don't know if they actually recorded it, because the way Alan Bruce talk about it, it's you know they they speak of it as if it was a recording that they did, but I I don't know if it's been located in the vaults or if they have the tape, so. I'd be very interested to find out what the deal was with that, if they actually did it or if they just rehearsed it at Brian's house.
1: Yeah. And that was something that, that Murray was pushing them to do. And he, for some reason was always trying to convince the Beach Boys, uh, as a band or as individuals to do commercials. Um, which makes a little bit of sense. I mean, Murray had some experience, um, you know, early on in his music career and, um, Brian's style of writing is very very much like like jingles like he comes up with these catchy hooks yeah you know his yeah, his, yeah. his early work is pretty much just a big commercial for California and for surfing and <laughs> it's, I think it's funny i I wish we could hear cool cool water sung about coca-cola because I i i want to hear that so bad <laughs> same I'm sure it would be amazing and he later got Dennis to to write some music for commercials too, which we'll talk about later.
2: Yeah. And they also, as well this time, uh, before they went on the European tour, they did these, um, promotional things for Radio Luxembourg, which, uh, some of which we used in the Hawthorne compilation. And some of them are pretty funny. Like there's, uh, the Dennis introduces Carl one where he's doing like, the piano roll up and then they, they play good vibrations really <laughs> fast. Like the lungs of a giant. <laughs> That's great. Um, and I, I, guess, I think we'll wrap things up at some point before we get into any more sessions. But I guess we'll briefly touch on. Um, Whether in England, this is on thirty um, first of May. Alf spotted uh, the Flame playing at a club in London, and then he went and got Brian. Uh, sorry, he went and got Carl to come and see them, and that is um, how they first got introduced to the Flame. So right after right after they did uh, Breakaway, before they released it, is when they first spotted this group that would obviously have a a big um, impact on them in the years to come. And also while they're away, uh whether in Paris on June sixteenth, they did this uh, show that was aired on T V that you can find on YouTube and it's um, it's a good show, but it's uh, somewhat distracting that Mike is in his Moharishi um, robes, which is a new thing he'd started doing at this point. <laughs> and like and I get a roll I get around, he starts like growling and gives Bruce a jump scare. <laughs> it's um, it's pretty interesting.
3: Around, round, get around, I get around, yeah, get around, run, I get around.
2: and then the capital contract capital contract expired officially at the end of the month and they still hadn't delivered them um the album that they'd promised and uh dutch gramophone also rejected the group at that at at some point that month and that kind of just left them yeah sort of um sort of hanging and i guess we'll pick up next time with what they did in the latter half of the year um which is when they were sort of on a, a search for a new label and Brian came back and all these changes were happening.
1: Yeah, we'll get to that in the, I guess, the next season of Ceylon. And um, I guess we'll talk a little bit about Breakaway and, and um, the reception of that. Breakaway came out in June. This is right after all of this. And far and away the best thing from this period, I think.
2: I mean, yeah, I agree. I was thinking about anything this by saying uh, let's take a breakaway, but I've decided not to do that. I don't think we should say that. That would be. <laughs> you don't think we should say let's take a breakaway? I don't think we should. I think we should just be cut off while we're th- right. having this conversation right now, abruptly, like at uh, the end of I want you shoes so heavy.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to think of another breakaway pun. Ah, oh, screw it. Let's take a breakaway.
0: Great work, as always, from Will and John. Thank you, dudes. This was a fun era to cover. It's one that often gets overlooked, so I'm glad we could spend some time and shed some light on the late 60s work from the Beach Boys. Smiley Smile, Wild Honey, Friends, and 2020 are all very different albums from a time of transition for the band that saw Brian becoming less interested and less involved with the group but others emerged as producers and songwriters in their own right. So on to season five, obviously we'll be covering Sunflower and Surf's Up, two albums that I love very much. And I know many of you guys do as well. I'm super thankful for your support. If you're interested in helping the podcast stay advertisement free, go check out the sale on Patreon page where we post new content every month, starting at just five bucks. Let's take a moment to say we love you to the newest members of the family. Zach Andrew Tompkins, CMCG98, Chuck Bernice, Chase Meehan, and Krista Truitt. We love you! Patreon.com slash SailOn to learn more. You need a mess of help to stand alone. Thanks to Will and John, to all our contributors, Nia, Freddie, Wilsie, Matt... Until next time, I wish you guys love and mercy. Sail on, sailors. will be a terrific, in fact, I talked, in fact, I said, Brian, why don't we just turn this thing in, into uh, good vibrations, because it's got the same kind of pente- I mean, uh, meter in terms of musical uh, score, and, and if we add some cellos, all we have to do is add a few cellos, yeah. redo the leads, and, 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 and revamp the lyrics, and it would really be, I think, a tribute to Brian's genius.